Previously on Maverick. The crazy thing that was spreading through the rumor mill was that small house churches were growing and multiplying in some of the hardest to reach places in the world. It turned into the largest global survey of Muslim movements to Christ ever conducted. And what I discovered was that more Muslims had come to Christ than at any time in history. We are living in the time of potentially the greatest expansion of the kingdom of Jesus that has ever happened. On December 27th, 2010, in the central Tunisian town of Sidi Bouzid, a 26-year-old street vendor named Mohamed Bouazizi stepped into the middle of the noonday traffic, doused himself in gasoline, and set himself ablaze. Angry and hopeless after repeated harassment for selling vegetables on the street without a permit, Bouazizi's act of desperation set off a wave of protests that eventually swept throughout the Arab world. After his suicide, riots broke out in 19 of the 22 Arab nations and toppled heads of state in Tunisia, Egypt, Libya, and Yemen. And before it was all over, anti-government protests had spread to Algeria, Morocco, Mauritania, Mali, Sudan, Syria, Jordan, Iraq, and Turkey. In the six months following Bouazizi's death, at least 107 other Tunisians attempted to kill themselves in protest by setting themselves on fire. The Arab world was seething, and the population stresses, the economic disparities, the political oppression had all reached a boiling point. And that came to be known as the Arab Spring as it was breaking out because many people hoped that it would lead to uh, democratic reforms and freedoms. Uh, some of the results were dramatic, uh, leading to the ouster of some presidents and some dictators. Some of the reactions and recoil from that were also very dramatic in which popular movements were suppressed. And much of the Arab Spring today is evaluated as having been a failed or an aborted attempt at a move toward democracy. So these countries sadly today are still largely under dictators or military leadership that keeps the popular will at bay. This is Maverick, and today we head to the Arab world and look at what has been labeled the most politically and socially oppressive region in the world. And we'll find out how a place like this makes room for a counter-cultural message like the gospel. It's surprising for many uh, people in the outside world to realize that there are millions of Arab Christians in the Arabic-speaking world with uh, ancient populations that go all the way back to the first century. We read in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul brought the gospel to Damascus, which is part of the Arab-speaking world today. We also know that he went to Arabia and spent time there. So this region is no stranger to Christian influence. In fact, many Christians in the West don't realize that uh, the name for God that Arabs use, Allah, is a name that doesn't originate with Islam. It originates with Christianity. In fact, it probably predates Christianity. It's an old Semitic name 
uh, tied to the Semitic languages of Arabic and Aramaic and even Hebrew. So Eloah, which becomes Elohim, um, and Allah are cousin names. And Christians were worshiping God as Allah long before the prophet Muhammad was born. But despite the fact that Christians live there, this isn't an area where the gospel has been breaking into the Muslim population. For hundreds of years, the wall between Christians and Muslims has seemed insurmountably high in the Arab world. And one of the reasons for that is that Islam tends to suppress curiosity. Many Muslims are taught not to ask questions or think outside their context. I remember in studying Arabic, uh, I would ask my teacher sometimes, why is it this way? And the response I would get was in Arabic, mafishli, there is no why. Or if you were asking a theological question, why did the Prophet Muhammad do such and such? The response would be, ask God. It was curt dismissal, no dialogue, no discussion. That's sort of the norm in these madrasas, these Islamic schools, where people will discuss things within the context of the Islamic echo chamber, where they're hearing voices from other faithful Muslims, but they're not listening to opposition voices. And when entire civilizations are taught not to question things, not to dive deep and investigate too much, it tends to keep people in line. And it's worked for a long time. But just like in other regions we've looked at, the internet has made the world smaller. And for Arab Muslims, it's made the world accessible. The Muslim communities, really in countries all over the Muslim world, create sort of an echo chamber. I've talked to friends who said, you know, we were raised to believe that we had great, you know, we had the greatest uh, civilization, the greatest culture, the greatest religion in the world. And we were happy with that until we started watching television. And we started seeing the world around us that had so much that we didn't have. And where women were able to do things that our women couldn't do. And where people had a voice in their society that we didn't have. And we became restless. That restlessness has led to many things. Things like the Arab Spring, where people are rising up and demanding change. As the outside world breaks in through TV and radio and social media, people in this region, for the first time ever, are being empowered to ask questions. And that ability to grapple has changed the spiritual climate. And that's a sense of what's happened, I think, across the Muslim world, is that the echo chamber is being violated by an outside world that's projecting all kinds of alternative possibilities into their world. And that's what we're seeing, uh, it creating the context uh, into which people would consider a change. And if the change is made available to them, they're seeing that uh, Jesus Christ is quite an alternative. And one of the individuals who first brought about that change is known in Arabic as Abuna Zechariah, which means our father, Zechariah. Father Zechariah grew up as a Christian in the Arab world. He was a Coptic Egyptian priest with a love for Muslims. So he would study the Quran and the Hadith and discuss them with Muslims. And while he lived in Egypt, he saw hundreds of Muslims come to faith in Jesus through his ministry. And because of it, he was jailed and eventually exiled from the country. That's probably been the pattern over the centuries that uh, 
voices of effective evangelists from within the Arabic-speaking world are either imprisoned and silenced, or if there's uh, international pressure, they may be simply expelled from the country where they will have no longer have a voice. But in the age of satellite television and internet, uh, that, that equation has changed. Because with the internet, although you can exile a man from the country, you can no longer exile his message. And what used to be a ministry just to Egyptian Muslims turned into a broadcast that started reaching the wider Arab world. And with that growing ministry, Father Zachariah was labeled public enemy number one by Islamic newspapers. And a $60 million bounty was put on his head by Al-Qaeda. So what was he doing that was so extremely dangerous and punishable by death? He was teaching people to ask questions. He goes straight to the heart of their scriptures, and he will reveal to them and he'll point out to them in the Quran and in the Hadith, the stories of the life of the Prophet Muhammad, inconsistencies, things that just don't make any sense. And he asked Muslims, think about these things. Ask yourself, does this seem reasonable to you? And sometimes they'll ask him questions and he'll give them a response, uh, either from their scripture or from the Christian scriptures. And sometimes he'll say to them, you know, I don't know, why don't you go and consult St. Google? I think it's just created a context in which people are seeking new answers to old questions. And uh, the old answers they had been getting like, um, there is no why. Uh, that doesn't satisfy them because they can go to the internet and type in the same question, why did Mohammed XYZ put in their question? And they'll get tons of answers. Not all of them are right, but what it means is they're no longer in this isolated cocoon where there's an echo of Muslim voices answering their questions. Because of Father Zachariah and others like him, Arab Muslims are starting to see that there is a whole world of thoughts and ideas about life and meaning. And it's giving them the permission, and honestly the courage, to go looking in places that they've always felt were off limits. There's a marketplace of ideas now across the Muslim world, and one of those ideas is the idea of uh, God loving people so much that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And that uh, idea, that uh, reality, that doctrine is something that is uh, capturing the hearts of many Muslims across the House of Islam. And one of those Muslims captivated by Jesus is an Arab man named Nasser. As David was conducting interviews in the region, Nasser's name kept coming up. It was clear that this guy had been impacting a lot of people. But David was having a hard time tracking him down. In fact, it took David a couple trips into the country before he was able to finally meet Nasser. This was a major accomplishment because <laughs> he, was, he was really kept secret for a while. The first trip or two I took in, they told me about him, but he was very cautious. And when I finally met him, well, he was just very warm and open and engaging and uh, unexpected. You know, I'm sitting on the floor in a room with this 64-year-old chain-smoking grandfather, drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes and various teeth missing, 
but you could tell when he engaged you that his mind was sharp and he had a he just had a strong sort of life force and energy and he began to tell me his story my name is nasser i was a very devout muslim and a political activist i owned a print shop and over the years i printed more than 2000 books on sharia law i knew the law very well and um then he began to hear about this Abuna Zachariah, this uh, Coptic priest who um, proclaimed the gospel, but did it in a way that engaged Muslims and talked to him about problems in the Quran. And when he heard about these problems in the Quran, over, he heard this over a satellite television and radio broadcast, he thought, well, this can't be true. And he went and pulled his books out and started looking through and found that everything Abuna Zachariah had said was actually there and that the Quran and the Sharia were actually filled with these problems. And that caused him to, uh, to reconsider his own relationship to Islam. I realized that Islam was not the way, that it was a lie. I began to talk to my family and friends, urging them to question what they had always been taught. We talked about the things we were hearing over the radio. Within a few years, I led 21 of them to faith in Jesus. All this while, Nasser, though he had come to faith through these religious broadcasts, he had not met with any Christians. He said he went to a church and asked them if they could disciple him, and let him be a part of their community. And they nervously looked around and assumed that maybe he was an informant from the government. And they said, no, 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 we do not accept any Muslims uh, to join our church. Why don't you go to the human rights people or go to the United Nations? Maybe they can help you. And so he went back home, sadly alone, disengaged from the local church. But on the other side of town, there was this missionary, a young fellow from Texas that I met. His name was Tim. Tim had been praying about how to reach Muslims. He'd been trying a lot of different approaches and nothing seemed to be working. But then he got in contact with one of the satellite ministries who were broadcasting inside his country. And they said, look, yeah, we've got some people who have responded to our broadcast. One of them is a college educated young professional. And the other is this, this old man, he's uh, 62 years old now. And, and uh, Tim said he thought about it, prayed about it. His head said, go with the young man. That's where the future of any kind of movement would be. But he said, after praying and listening to God, God led him to this 62-year-old man named Nasser. And he committed himself to just loving and serving and spiritually nurturing Nasser in the weeks, months, and years that followed. Tim became like a spiritual father to me. He taught me how to listen to God, how to interpret his word, and how to walk obediently in the spirit. With Tim's help, my faith grew. And so did my ministry. In 11 months, we went from 21 to 2,845 people that have been baptized in the name of Jesus. Nasser began to use the uniqueness of who he was, a political organizer, a visionary leader, a person with a love and a passion for his own people. And in the years that followed, God through Nasser spawned a movement that uh, saw several thousand Muslims in his country come to faith in Jesus Christ. Today, there are hundreds of small groups meeting together in the region. 
And what's maybe even more interesting than why they came to faith is how they're living out that faith. We organize people into groups of five members. Those five people get to know each other very well. They meet together each week, studying the scripture and praying together. Then we go around the circle and have a time of accountability and confession. And when we are finished, we go out each into our own communities, focusing on who we are going to share the message with. None of these small groups know each other. Every little cell church stays at five people or less, and there's no communication between them. And the reason is because these small groups are often getting discovered, and the members are getting jailed or tortured for information or thrown out of the country. And so the idea is that even when one of these groups goes down, the rest stay safe. The genius of the Holy Spirit was producing new life, new communities. That was much more interesting than me coming in and trying to teach them the way we did it back in a suburban context somewhere in America where everyone had freedom to come, to go, to arrive late, to not show up, to listen, to not listen. These were much more dynamic and vibrant and vital communities inside this persecution context in the Arab world. Now, this isn't the kind of ecclesiology or church doctrine that's taught in our seminaries in the West, but this is something that's grown out of the realpolitik, uh, the real political situation in these high persecution contexts. And it's one that's led to not only rapid multiplication of new cell groups of believers, but it's also led to a deepening in faith and a growth through faithfulness to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and fidelity to the Word of God. The definition of a maverick is a lone dissenter, someone who takes an independent stand and refuses to adhere to the mentality of the group. It seems to me that everywhere we see movement, it begins with mavericks. People who question the way things have always been done and make room for God to do something new. People brave enough to see things differently and to leave the rushing current of their cultures. It takes missionary mavericks who see cultures and languages and people groups in more complex ways and forge new paths of bringing the gospel to new places. And it takes mavericks in those cultures who will step out in belief, even when everyone else is telling them not to. Like when everyone said that to be Indonesian was to be Muslim and to be Christian was to be Dutch. Sadrach made up a new category entirely. Or when Hakim went after sheikhs in East Africa even when everyone else avoided them. Or in Eastern South Asia where thinking about names and titles differently has launched entire movements. Or the men whose radical new vision changed the way women were treated in Western South Asia. In most of these cases, it isn't radical people doing radical things. It's God taking really normal people and turning their lives upside down to the point where they can't help but send ripples through their cultures. You know, the, the biggest single takeaway from this survey that took me a quarter of a million miles um, in three years across 39 different countries and over a thousand interviews is that we serve a risen Lord, a living Lord. What I encountered with Muslim movements to Christ was Muslims who against all odds and against all social, political, economic pressures had encountered someone so vibrant, so real, so powerful, 
that they changed the course of their life. At great personal cost, they gave themselves to Jesus. And this really rekindled my own faith. Uh, it reminded me that I'm not serving a civilization, a culture, an institution. Uh, I'm serving a living person in the person of Jesus Christ. And we're part of something much bigger than ourselves, that this is not our mission. It's not our job to try to win the world. This is God's work. This is something that uh, He allows us to be a part of. I think for us in America to hear these stories and be immersed in these movements, it's so tempting to want a formula, to narrow each region down to a few practical things that made movements happen there, mostly so we can go to another place and synthesize movement. But as I've talked to person after person who've experienced these movements firsthand, there just isn't a way to boil it down. There isn't something easy to point to and recreate. This is God doing something bigger than us. It's hundreds of years of faithful prayers and patience. And for whatever reason, we're living in the days when God is answering those prayers. God is displaying His love for Muslims by drawing them to Himself in every corner of the world. And for us here in the West, we have to do something with that. Whether it's sharing their stories or leaving everything behind to live among them, or joining the ranks of those faithful prayers, we have to recognize this unprecedented moment in history and decide why God chose to have us here now living in the midst of it. This season of Maverick was sponsored by Global Gates. They're dedicated to reaching the ends of the earth through global gateway cities. For more information or to get involved, visit globalgates.info. To help support the Maverick Podcast, consider giving monthly at themaverickpodcast.com.